This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew. You, whoa. Bah, bah, bah. Thunder and lightning noises. It's a haunted <laughs> western. Bwana, bwana, bwana. <laughs> you really benefit from having a last name that ends with a ghost sound. Ham? No. Oh, sorry. Oh, the Andrew. end of your name. <laughs> right? Yeah, the end of my first name. It ends with ooh. Like, I I just have Craig like an egg or a severed leg. Um, knock him down a peg. I mean, your last name though, Craig Getting. You can make yeah. that work with pretty much anything. That's true. I brought my lights back up because I was getting too scared. That's fine. Um, <laughs> I am dramatically lit by my very bright second monitor, and that's mm-hmm. what it's gonna do. Yeah. Um, so, yes. It looks like they're filming a movie outside your window because <laughs> the light out there is extremely good for some reason. I don't think people can see it in the crop that you did, but it is good uh, out there. Uh, and there's a there's a big weed tree that blows in the wind. Um, not that kind of weed tree. No, one of the bad ones that we talked about in Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Anyway, welcome to our podcast uh, that we cover books that you've been meaning to read. One of us reads a book and tells the other person about it. We haven't read this book before. And this is our uh, closing episode of Spooktober, the spookiest month of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What else do people need to know about how our show works, Andrew, now that you are making me nice and small in the video, which is not going to play for people at home. Uh, That's the point of the stream, though. It's just to have this is called fun with OBS with Andrew and Craig. Um, the show every week, one of us reads a book and tells the other person about it. Did you see that part already? Yeah, sorry, I did. I was, really, I was I was too busy. Messing you were with the casting. Thing. You were too busy casting a digital spell on me to shrink. Is me. there something else you were hoping I would say? Um, I don't know. Probably not. This is our bonus stream where we have Patreon supporters hanging out with us in a YouTube chat. If you would like to join us for another one of these, the next one will probably happen in December. You can find more information at patreon.com. But Andrew, I want to talk about the book that I read this week. Okay. You read Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff, right? I That's the one. What if I scared you with a different one we've never done that before that would be the scariest thing of all <laughs> is if one of us did an hour of research on something and then the other person su- surprised them and they just had to kind of make up facts on the fly i guess about the author yeah and like the context of the book that would be a fun we could do a whole episode about a book that doesn't exist that would be fun Ooh, like the the fake street sharks episode okay um <laughs> Lovecraft Country is a book that was by Matt Ruff. It was published in 2016. And the main thing to know about it, which you may already know if you have paid any attention to the HBO series that came out recently, is it is a book that 
juxtaposes elements of Lovecraftian horror, which is extremely like influential and everywhere in the horror genre, while um, acknowledging Lovecraft's racism and the racism of Jim Crow America and often making white people the monster. That's true. Because, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there is, I want to give a shout out to one of our listeners, Gloria, who sent in an email. There's uh, a recent episode of the Imaginary Worlds podcast called uh, Inverting Lovecraft. It's episode 148. Uh, covers a lot of the backstory of who and what Lovecraft was about, why his fiction is interesting to people. Uh, and it gives a, a great shout out to a novella called The Ballad of Black Tom um, by Victor Laval, which came, this that book came out like the same, you know, within a few months of this one. So they're, they're covering similar ground, except that one I think actually is more Lovecraftian than this one is. Sure, yeah. Um, you have watched some of the show, Andrew? I'm so all 10 episodes I think are up. I am like six episodes in at this point, but for, for reasons that we'll talk about, that's not going to be a big, uh, that's not going to be a big deal when we're talking about the plot because the show and the book both are sort of like an anthology series, which if you, if you think about like a twilight zone or a black mirror where each episode is kind of like it, it is conceptually similar, but it is like riffing on a whole new idea every time. That is that is kind of what we're talking about a yep. little bit. So it it combines characters who are who persist across stories with um, sort of a, almost a monster of the week format, or like a, a f- like the the show has played around with with like time jumping formats and and more like straightforward adventure stories and and, and yeah, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, um, which so I, I'll be interested to just do a little debrief towards the end or, or even as we go of like some stuff I know is part of the show that is not part of the book um, just from how they decided to adapt it. But we should talk about Matt Ruff first, then maybe we'll talk about Lovecraft a little bit and then we'll get into the book itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrew, there's not much about Matt like this is his breakthrough success book. Uh, I have that he was born in 1965 in New York City. He wanted to be a writer at the age of five, which is very mm. ambitious of him. Yeah, uh, the, his biography is sort of <laughs> like, boy wants to be a writer, and then he became a writer. Yeah, for sure. Um, and he, you see that a little bit reflected in the character Horace in the book, who is of a young, like 10 or 11 year old, I think, maybe a little bit older, um, who wants to be a comic book artist. And like, he's just going to do that. And you can, in the the chapter we spend with him uh, reading up on Matt, I can see a little bit of, of the two of them. It's worth noting that, um, if we haven't said it already, Lovecraft Country is, you know, it's about racism. It's about uh, the experience of black Americans uh, in the 1950s. Uh, Matt Ruff is a white guy. And we can talk about where the book came from for him, but it it is just kind of worth putting that out there because I honestly expected there to be a little bit more on that. And because the show has taken off, uh, a lot more of the discourse around this story and this property has, has actually focused on the black creators of the show, like Misha Green and Jordan Peele and, and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So, yeah. Um, there is some fun stuff on Matt Ruff's website where he just lists a bunch of stories he'd almost wrote throughout his life. Like he's published six books, six or seven books. 
Uh, this one was nominated for a World Fantasy Award in 2017. Um, but from an early age, he appears to be kind of riffing on other fiction that he liked, be it TV or movies or whatever. Um, there's something on it from the ephemera part of his website called Untitled, early to mid-1970s. My first sustained effort at a novel was a soap opera-like story about a family with lots and lots of kids. Uh, think eight is enough with surreal elements. <laughs> There's no overall plot, just a series of loosely linked episodes, uh, you know, and yada, yada, yada. And he... See, the, fun of, the fun of talking about your unpublished works like that is that I can hear that and be like, oh, that sounds like a cool premise, but I don't need to, like, I don't need to read a whole book. That's no, that. just and think he about need it. And he doesn't need to deliver on it yes. either. I can just kind of imagine what it would be like. He was writing stories as a kid, like, you know, just riffing on a popular TV episode, but putting his friends in instead. Like, he just seems like a fan <laughs> of good fiction and fun fiction and has kind of built his career off of riffing on that. It's just um, like an Oregon Trail where you would always put in like the name of the, all your friends and then yeah. the girl you liked. Okay. <laughs> I think so. Um, his first novel was Fool on the Hill in 1988. Uh, this is his sixth novel. Um, his newest novel, 88 Names, is coming out soon if it hasn't come out already. It came out in March. Okay. Oh, wow. Well, that was so 20 years way, ago. So who knows? to be prepared. Yeah. Every You could not convince me that most of the months of 2020 actually existed yep. like april the april you can't prove april existed nope, i'm sorry happen. you just can't that's science nope um this book as we said published in 2016 some of the influences that rough cites in interviews and in the like kind of whatever it's not an afterword but like the post book part of my kindle download um James Lowen's Sundown Towns, which is a book about towns, particularly in the north um, in the early and mid 20th century and probably other parts of American history, um, where racist white people would say, like, if you're black and you're here after sundown, uh, we're going to come get you. Um, And he also cites an essay by Pam Knowles called Shame, which I think we've talked about before, which is about it's an essay from 2006 about being a black sci fi fan and was taking specific issues with um, some whitewashing of an Ursula K. Le Guin adaptation. Um, And then he also says, you know, he cites everything from uh, a professor at Cornell who, you know, introduced him to the Green Book, uh, which became a film, which maybe we'll talk about later, uh, as well as an experience with a friend of his when he was like, hey, I like to go hiking, uh, my friend at Cornell University who happens to be black. Why don't you spend a weekend with me hiking in the woods in upstate New York? And he's like, no, I'm good. Like, <laughs> that would be very dangerous for me, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ruff was like, wow, I, ooh, okay. Uh, and this book actually came... I, I laugh at the at the... the... The experience that I would probably have had at the same time when I was in college. Yeah. I would probably yeah, have no, said that thing to someone. Yeah, 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 yeah. That that yeah, that's what I am. Yes. Like the 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 naivete of mm-hmm. of saying that. Yeah. Um this book started, did you find this in anything Andrew? This started as like a TV series that he was pitching. Yeah, and that that is part of why it ended up I think as a, as an anthology thing. He was just trying to make it uh sort of episodic by by virtue of its its structure i guess um though it it does i'm i like the the um uh, 
the format because it, it, it is sort of Lovecrafty itself. Yeah. Like he mm-hmm. often did that sort of thing where he would reuse a setting or reuse a character and they wouldn't be like super explicitly linked. He wouldn't be telling one like continuous story that you were like following that person through the whole way. But but there would be shared elements and it would contribute to the sense of like there being a wider universe out there that had just not been all the way explored yet. Yes. And that's sort of what the show and it sounds like what the book is is also sort of playing with. Well, and and. By all accounts, Lovecraft was also pretty interested in other people, like, riffing on his universe. Um, oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, like, he wanted other writers to to play in that space. Um, though, of course, as I think some authors of color have said, he probably would not like the kind of wave of black writers playing around with it. And they were like, that's yeah. why I like doing it. Uh, stick it to that guy. How much of... So I, I have notes on two things. I have some sort of black perspectives on the story. Sure. Um, mostly endorsing it, though, like you said, I couldn't find a lot of, of stuff out there in the first place. And then I have just some fun like tidbits of what we are talking about when we talk about H.P. Lovecraft and, and how he was he specifically was racist in ways that I think went. I don't know if it went beyond the the bounds of like what was accepted in white society at the time with respect to racism but it just it it is it is stuff that's hard to ignore especially if you are trying to like celebrate his work i think today i yeah. think we should do the latter now so that there's no mistaking it and that we got it on the record in this pod up front of what a nasty jerk he was how about so that? Sure, we can talk about some of the some of the more subtle things first. Like as the chairman of the United Amateur Free Press Association, uh, he advocated the superior the superiority of an archaic sort of form of English, which you you can you can you definitely pick that up if you if you read his stories. Uh, he and he heavily criticized use of Americanisms or slang, referring of course to additions brought into American English by Black people and other immigrant communities. Huh. So that's fun. Yeah. Um, wouldn't you know that a lot of the sort of demons and monsters in his stories are the result of humans breeding with other races, like other al- like monsters and other alien races. So you know, oh, that's that's pretty bad. Yeah. Um, and then he also wrote a poem called On the Creation of the N-Word, <laughs> oh. which is not, it's not about the creation of the word, it's he just uses the N-Word. And so he, yeah, in, in which he calls black people beasts. And yeah, so it's it's not all, you know, subtext, which makes it easier to pin down when you're talking about why he's racist. This this sort of reevaluation of of him and his work came to a head relatively recently yeah. in 2015 when the uh, the people who run the World Fantasy Awards changed the trophy from a statue of Lovecraft to like a sort of a gnarled tree set against a full moon. Now I do, I did, let's see if this works. For our friends at home, I did pull up a picture of what the bus used to look like. Oh, neat. Okay. I'm not, in, I'm not entirely sure this was meant to be flattering of H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, God. Well... Uh, but that, yeah, that's so if you wrote a really good sci-fi book, you could have this in your house, which seems more like a punishment than anything else to me. <laughs> Spin says, that's a bust. <laughs> which, 
inches nice. through. Nice. Um, that is a chthonic god that you could just have in your house. Oh gosh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does there's? A, I found an interview with as in the Independent with Ruff about Lovecraft. He says Lovecraft mm. has become a lightning rod, but he's not the only example of racism in genre writing. Part of what I tried to dramatize in the book is the difficulty black nerds had in loving a genre that was constantly ignoring them. You have Edgar Rice Burroughs with John Carter, a Confederate soldier whose slaves loved him. Even Jekyll and Hyde. Hyde's not black, but there's an implication he's Eastern European, so he's like different somehow. Um, and yeah, this the the I think what people find interesting about Lovecraft, this cosmic horror thing where you are reckoning with your with the universe's indifference to you and your own insignificance against these monstrous elder gods like that is a thing that a lot of people have ever felt and it is interesting to think about in a genre you might like but the thing with Lovecraft is that that was definitely an anxiety about what if white people weren't in charge anymore <laughs> And, like, what if the evil squid gods treated us the way that we treat people who are different from us? Like, that is that is an underpinning of Lovecraft that you need to think about when you're reading him. I think, like, yeah, luckily, if you are are writing something that's sort of been influenced by him, I do think it is completely, totally possible to take the concept of, uh, like, an alien race that is not that has not come to destroy us, but is just here and doesn't care about us one way or the other. Like that is a specific yeah. kind of, of horror that I think you can separate from the, the racial undertones without a lot doing a lot of, of work, which is good because these tropes are still kind of everywhere. But uh, yeah, it definitely, like I read, I had three, I think Lovecraft anthologies as a, as a, like a high school or a teen. I didn't, I didn't read, I had at least one exhaustively yeah. like everything, but I did enjoy it a lot. And I d- also totally did not pick up on any of the stuff that we just spent five minutes talking. Nope. About. Nope. Nope. Um, so let's get into the book, which Misha Green, the showrunner of the HBO program said, uh, when I read Matt's novel, I said, Oh, it's legit. Thank God. Um, but here's my thing for a white writer, not to be able to, for a white writer, not to be able to step into the shoes of people of color confuses me. That should be the default. Many people of color have to step into the shoes of white people, uh, sure, sure. and kind of bemoans that we don't expect people to rise to that challenge. So, um, the creators of the show and Jordan Peele, who at the time that the book was being optioned for a show, the trailer for get out had like just come out. So that was when Matt Ruff was like, Oh, this comedy guy actually knows what he's talking about when he wants to make my horror book into a TV show. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's get into the book itself. The, as I said, it's set in the 1950s, which is like kind of the, the, we're not at the death throes of Jim Crow era America yet. Like, no, not, not nearly. And arguably like, (laughs) no, well, we're still wrestling with, we are, we are still Um, Brown Um, v. Board is 1954. for, yeah, yeah. It, it's a if you study this era in school, I think you do a lot of focusing on this particular like leg of G- Jim Crow, like the just pre uh, 60s civil rights movement version, like implementation of, of what was going on. Yes. Um, yeah. And so in the book, it is very specifically not set in the South. Uh, Ruff has said as much that like he wanted to 
explore this era of American history, this ver- you know these uh, examples of and instances of you know very personal and systemic racism, um, but not in the part where we all look back and go, oh, that's history. That's a bunch of what a what the bad people did in that part of the country that you know what that you can kind of cordon off with a border that didn't really exist. Um, yeah, right. So it's mostly set in Chicago, but there are some spots that take place in Massachusetts, and they go up to Wisconsin for a little bit. Um, Lovecraft is in the universe. Like, the writers that we just mentioned as inspirations are all in fiction. The main character, Atticus Turner, is a Korean War vet who's a big fan of these sci-fi books and has read John Carter and has argued with his dad about the value of reading these books. Um, yeah, his his dad who's played by um, Michael K. Williams in the in the show. Oh, sure. Yeah, very. Uh, I don't know. I was I always like seeing him and stuff. Yes, but um, yeah, like the the criticism that his dad has of him being interested in these books is like, I think it's the criticism that you get of a lot from like a lot of adults thinking that their kids were like into something childish past when it was. Oh like, yeah, wise to be into it. So there's like that level, and then there's also the this guy was wicked racist and absolutely would have hated you. <laughs> uh huh. Angle, which yes, is fun. for real. Yeah. Um, and it it's just kind of like taken as a given that this character likes this fiction, and it's not a thing that he can shake. I think that's a very relatable human feeling where you like encounter a work of art that you respond to, and then you change or your relationship to it changes or you have a hard time actually changing it. I think the notion that these... You want to talk about Orson Scott I don't, actually. That will take over the whole show. Um, <laughs> I think the the notion that those stories exist in this, in this world is very interesting. Books play a very big part in the plot and in the world building. Like, the, the family keeps a book of days that one of their relatives used to itemize all of the work she did while she was enslaved and total up the monetary value, um, which later, you know, actually becomes important when someone pays that reparation back to them. Um, There are these comic books that the character Horace is making. There is a fictional version of the green book, which was that Viggo Mortensen, Mahershala Ali movie like a year or two ago. Um, And it's called, what is it called in this book uh it is called the safe negro travel guide uh mm-hmm. it, you know atticus's uncle george has been printing this book where he and other people who work for him go to businesses in the northern united states and basically log whether or not people are you know they, they make a map of businesses that will actually you know serve black people and treat them respectfully and also point out where you might not want to go as well. Yeah, and so especially for um, like black people in the north who had like family in the south who they wanted to drive to visit, like this kind of guidebook would is my understanding would would quite literally like save lives by yes. by keeping people on like a, a safe path. Yes, um, and then it you know once some of the civil rights legislation came around like it, it fell out of out of print though i think they've reprinted some like is archival the right word like they they've, they've yeah, reprinted right. some yeah. old versions of it just just as a for the um, record yeah 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 and and it's been 
it's been popular because like it's it, it's one of those things and like when did you learn about juneteenth like i learned about it like probably like four or five years yeah, ago that it's sounds one, about of the, right. one of those one of those things that i just was totally in the in the dark about and it's like somebody in the in the chat earlier said this about the concept of like sundown towns it is and like and the Tulsa stuff, like that is yeah. all stuff I've learned about, like within the last half decade. It's, and it is it sucks that we were I not, did not taught it. Yeah. Learn it before that, yeah. As as white dudes in the north, we were not taught it. Um, this book also, uh, Atticus's dad Montrose and his uncle George were in Tulsa during the bombing of Tulsa, nineteen twenty one. Um, there's a later chapter that de- that does a flashback to when they were getting this uh, book of days that is an important family heirloom, obviously, um, trying to save it as that attack is happening. Um, and so it was interesting reading this book, which you know came out in 2016. I think a lot of folks really have a frame of reference for the Tulsa thing from Watchmen, which came out last year. That was like the depiction of that in Watchmen as I think a lot where a lot of folks were introduced to it. Um, so it's just interesting that this book is, has, is catching on now as well. Um, but I just want to say like the, the background framework of this uh, travel guide as the like justification for, for why these characters might move through the world is actually really genius. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I think it is a good, like it has built in stakes for like why people might want to go to a place that they've never been before, uh, talk to people that they don't know, which is an inherently risky proposition, um, and they have a specific goal. It gives it, it gives the overall like book universe a solid X Files type conceit, where it's like this is why you go somewhere and do a thing. That's why the episode happens. Uh, I can see how this started as a. Uh, as a TV show idea because it's got this kind of like, Oh, if I have some main characters and how are they going to get into trouble? They're going to wander into this place and ask some questions and then stuff's going to go wrong. (laughs) Like that's just a really solid setup for your story. Um, As we've been talking about, the book is episodic and like top level, each story, not there's not a clean one-to-one on this, but each story has a like primary riff on the types of racism and the types of inequities that these characters might have faced in the mid 20th century. So uh, the the first chapter, which is like a decent chunk of the book, centers on Atticus. And he is, uh, as I said, a Korean war vet who was working in Florida for like a while, even though everyone's like, you're crazy. Why are you down there? It's terrible down there. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is going home to, to Chicago. Cause he got a letter from his estranged dad. Who's like, Hey, I found out some information on your mother's ancestry. And I have tra- I'm probably going to go to Massachusetts to go look it up. And he's like, well, that's weird. What, uh, what? And by the time he gets back to Chicago, his dad's already gone. And so you get introduced to his uncle, George, who I mentioned earlier, um, his aunt Hippolyta, uh, his friend Letitia, Letitia Dandridge, who is one of the main characters on the show as well. Um, I believe she's called. She goes by Letty on the show, but the book everybody calls her T- Tisha or Tisha. Yeah, um, that's right. 
and she's a childhood friend of his who like saves the day multiple times. She gets to be the one who like usually has a plan to escape from a bad situation, which is really cool. Um, and the first like section, I thought what happened in this first story, Andrew, was gonna be the whole book. Let me like yeah. See, can we just do that the, for a the second? First, the first couple episodes of the show were pretty. Like a fairly continuous thing. And yeah, I thought that was going to be the whole show as well. And then by the time we're three episodes in, we have completely left that story behind. And they're like buying a haunted house to move into. And I'm like, what are we talking about? Yeah. So I went went into this book with none of what I've laid out so far in this episode. So like we get into this story where Atticus, um, he is riding to Massachusetts with his uncle and his friend Letitia. And they encounter uh, some violent racists at a diner in upstate New York. And uh, a, a spooky silver car is also there that may or may not have been around when their dad disappeared. And uh, the silver car is there when the fire truck full of racists flips over and explodes. And they're like, well, that's strange. And then they get pulled over by, uh, well, they get you know taken into the woods by some sheriffs in a small town in Massachusetts, um, and it's very you know it is not supernatural at all. It is just horrific. Like it is very clear that George and Atticus might get killed by these police, um, and then a monster maybe kills the cops. Are there mm-hmm. monsters in the show that you see? Oh, definitely, definitely, definitely. There are. So there is a there there are. Like big scary Lovecraft dog monsters, and like one of them bites one of the white cops, and he, the white cop literally becomes the monster. It might be a little on the nose, actually. <laughs> <laughs> this was a this was a small criticism of the show. Was this the, the um, Atlantic review? Yeah, yeah, from the Atlantic by Hannah uh, Georges, I think. Yep. Um, who says? Although the book dramatizes the wickedness of white supremacy without losing its black character's interiority, the adaptation bears down on the cartoonish villainy of its white antagonists. <laughs> so yeah, it does it does it does get a little over the top sometimes in the show. So in the Which and listen, sometimes you gotta make a thing unsubtle. Yes. Like that's just how it is sometimes. I don't mind but. that. In the book, I honestly felt like this particular passage where they're in the woods, um, they're very palpably in danger with these police. Um, it felt very grounded and honestly like there's a spot where they're hearing some kind of almost like the monster from lost sounds in the woods <laughs> and then cops start disappearing um, but also Letitia has saved the day by like, blowing up the cop car because she stowed away in the back of their station wagon or something mm-hmm. and it it very specifically obscures whether or not there was a monster there you don't actually see anything and then you later learn that there is a character who has magic powers that I certainly thought was there at the scene of this whole (laughs) attack. So in my brain, like as I was reading the rest of the book, I was like, Oh, that was just the magic man who was there who probably helped save them. It could have been a monster, but the book is very light (laughs) on actually showing you Cthulhu esque horrors, even though there are references to Lovecraft works. Yes. Um, so the the main my little, my little Lovecraft song. I just want to. We haven't talked a lot about what's going on in the chat like we do normally with these episodes, but a lot of people, um, sharing like when they learned about stuff like Tulsa and and Juneteenth, and just discussing in general the failings of of 
our education, like whether they were in the North or in the South. And yeah, it's, it's, I don't even know when I started sort of realizing that the stuff I had learned from my high school civics text or whatever was not like objective, unvarnished truth yeah. handed down from the Mount, you know, and then like no humid, no human with any viewpoint had had anything to do with the creation and like distribution of this thing. It's kind of, it is wild. And I'm glad that we have a space where we can all kind of talk about this. Yeah, I, I do appreciate that. I look back on my high school career being very excited to get high scores on tests about European history and wondering what I could have done with that time instead. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so again, if we're I in the- I remember my oh, high school civics book being just very like- very heavy, very positive on Reaganomics and weird respect. I'm not making that up. It was just like mentioned as <laughs> once you got to Reagan, it was like, oh yeah, he he invented this Every thing called history, Reaganomics, and it was super great. Going yeah. to school in the <laughs> 90s and the aughts was like you get to 1960, and it's like I don't know, it's June, go home. You just it, run yeah, out it's, of time. It's June, go home, and then in uh, in the late 90s, you were like, well, I guess we're all going to learn how impeachment works, and that it doesn't act. The impeachment doesn't mean the removal. It just means yep. It just means they've been impeached. That's that's how all the '90s kids knew what impeachment was when it <laughs> suddenly became relevant again. Uh, let's get into this, this story. I'm sorry. I'm, yeah, please do. I'm jumping yeah. around. So the, this first the this first story that we're still in. Geez, um, the centerpiece is they are at this lodge in the middle of nowhere, Massachusetts, the Ardham Lodge, where uh, this white ma- patriarch of a magical family. Mr. Braith white is there. Uh, he has set up this weird remote hotel that they are all expected at. Um, and Atticus, George and Letitia, uh, are on the hunt for, uh, Atticus's dad. Of course, they think he's there somewhere. They think he might be in trouble and they do find him chained up in a basement. He was used as bait to get Atticus there because, lo and behold, Mr. Braithwaite runs the Order of the Ancient Dawn, and the sons of Adam want to use Atticus in a ceremony, similar to a ceremony that wiped out a bunch of them 200 years ago, to grant them immortality uh, by sacrificing him in their you know, ceremony. And he says, literally, you want me to be your magical Negro. <laughs> which is a fun play on that trope. I don't think you can have a secret society with a name that long and not have it be evil. Yeah. I think just automatic. Once you go above like three words, you just become more evil with each word that you add. Yeah. Now, of course, the reason that Atticus is important is that he is a descendant of a relative of the Braithwaites um, who did, ha- you know, they enslaved people in Massachusetts way longer than that was uh, legal, um, which why they created their little like cloistered in the woods, uh, you know, outside of time society. Um, and she, you know, ran away. Um, and Crystal says it's like serial killers and people who use all three names. Yeah, all three names is a, is a sure sign of a serial killer. Um, so a woman who was enslaved by the Braithwaites, uh, she got pregnant. Um, she, you know, was forced to have sex and then ran away uh and Atticus is descended from her so he has like magical blood that is important now it is important to note in the book that these men do not consider themselves like wizards or witches Andrew they use the phrase natural philosopher a lot 
um, <laughs> like alchemists. That's like that's people who who say, "Oh, I'm a classical liberal." <laughs> They, I don't want to tell you. I don't want to tell you what I really. They are mean, men here's of the branding that I've come up with. They are men of science, of course, um, and so all of there's a scene where Atticus has kind of like figured this out. He's read the book on the shelf in his creepy hotel room um, that he found that kind of tells him what's going on, and he's in the hotel foyer, as it were, where all the other. Uh, you know, parts of this order have gathered for this ceremony. And he literally stands on a table and he's like, hey, listen, I think I figured out that I'm a direct descendant of this line, which means I'm in charge of all of you and you all need to go outside while I figure this out. And they all, <laughs> like, one by one, they all stand up and they're like, hmm. I, that scene I in guess the show is very, out. very good because <laughs> it is a room full of people who are used to being able to speak to the manager being told that they... Uh huh have to actually sir you have to leave the store yes and, and this was where i made a note that i was like wait a second he has like cottoned on to the to the entire backstory to his like him possibly being like a you know being part of a lineage which is usually some sort of like chosen one narrative that i thought was going to maybe like be the rest of the book and no his story wraps up within about 20 pages where yes he does get put into this ceremony, but the son, Caleb, which I think they changed into Christina in the show. Um, yeah, it's, it's complicated. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, Caleb, who does not like his father at all, has actually maneuvered it so that Atticus has a way to change the spell at the last minute that they are casting to bring the light of creation into their room so they can become immortal. Uh, and instead of killing him and making them immortal the light of creation just vaporizes all the all the white guys and Atticus lives and then that story's like over and you're like whoa okay so the proto man character has gone away the good bad guy <laughs> you know we don't know what his story is he's out there somewhere and now our heroes are going to return to Chicago I guess and like go on living their life and we're only yeah, a quarter of the way through the book I will say that the the sequence in the TV show, and I don't know in in the chat which who of you have watched the the show, and who haven't, but the the animation where Atticus <laughs> is running out of the castle as it like collapses after this like ritual that blows all the old white guys apart, is some of the worst looking. Oh no! <laughs> computer in, in uh, computer generated graphics that I've seen on television and sometimes that's wild too bad to me too because like i don't think that happens in the book like the the whole manor house does not come down like there i mean you gotta you gotta have kind of your moment where you run and jump out of the door yeah sure there's an explosion like behind you you gotta adapt it for tv it's much it's much more restrained so like then i was like okay well what is the book gonna do now because i thought that was going to be the whole story was like finding my dad and oh wait i'm part of this prophecy no we start getting individual chapters about individual people each of which as i said is like focused on a certain thing so the next one is all about leticia and this time that she buys a haunted house and uh-huh. it is not just about ghosts it's about redlining and housing injustice because of course this is in yeah. chicago and so she well of course all the old goat like People who are dead already who lived in the past, they're going to be even more racist than the people who are currently living. So it's like an old racist ghost in your house. But but what I think is really fascinating and, and I, Ruff does a pretty good job, I think, of like 
he spends time at the beginning of most of these stories grounding them in the the real world versions of these horrors so like Letitia is concerned about what she's going to do with her life she think she gets a letter saying that she has a like a, a windfall inheritance from her late father and she's like you know what I'm gonna buy a house and I'm gonna make it like a place where people can rent rooms and I'm gonna make sure that black people have a place to stay here in this city where it is hard for black people to own property um, and I'm gonna buy a house in a white neighborhood and because I have the money to do that. And lo and behold, the, the one that she can afford uh, that is big enough is affordable because it's haunted. <laughs> and yeah. the guy haunting it, Hiram Winthrop. Um, That's the most racist name I ever heard. Uh-huh. <laughs> like I don't want to. I hope we don't have any Hiram Winthrop's in the in the chat. But that's the most racist name I think anybody can have. So these these groups of magical racists um, are referred to as lodges throughout the throughout the country of the United States. And so the people in Artem um, now Caleb Braithwaite is running that lodge. Hiram Winthrop used to run the Chicago Lodge until he was killed for some reason, which you find out later. And he is now like haunting. His his house um you get some kind of classic spooky house stuff where like creepy statues turn around and doors slam there's an elevator that may or may not go to hell like the house um, can bang and boom but maybe like nothing falls to the floor in the, stuff. So in the show the the haunting that is coming from inside the house is juxtaposed juxtap- juxtaposed juxtaposed yeah that's how many syllables that word has right yeah <laughs> it's juxtaposed with racism that's coming from outside the house from all the horrible neighbors who are mad that black people have moved into a white neighborhood. Correct. Um, And at the end of the episode, you get a bit of catharsis where the house turns its hauntedness on the horrible racists who have come in to beat everybody up and just like kills them real good. So do you, is that how the, the, the the book works? And then after (laughs) we talk about this one, because we, I, I don't want to run over time. Like, I, I don't know if you just want to like talk about your favorite things or how sure. you want to handle the rest of the book. But there you go. Um, great. So in this chat, I don't know. I think Katie asked in the chat. I don't recall off the top of my head if it mentions which neighborhood. Um, it does make. Yeah, let me see if it's in the show at all. Okay. Um, but... uh, all white neighborhood on Chicago's north side. Yeah, yep, that's that's that as specific sense. as I remember yep. it being too. Is just north side. Um, and the what happens is the ghost almost kills Letitia and she basically bullies the ghost into into like being on her side she's like listen Hiram I will haunt you if you kill me and I will haunt anyone else that moves in this house I will make it very difficult for you and so they reach like a detente and then she yes as you've said Andrew she starts getting harassed by people on the block specifically some younger white boys who are following her around who uh, gets scared off by a dog that she has that she has, but then um, they decide to sneak into the house at night and try and you know torch the place. Um, and the ghost does not kill them, but like almost kills one of them with the elevator until the police arrive. Like people are screaming and, and things like that. Um, so there is like some catharsis where now Letitia just owns this haunted house and there's it kind of rules. There's also a um, there's a and th- this is probably another like visual thing that the the TV show does that the book doesn't doesn't bother with but like the 
uh, some of the white neighbors have like parked cars outside the. It does house mention that, and yeah. have put bricks on the on like the horns to just make them. Oh, great! Make a loud blaring horn noise. Yeah, over and over again. And Letitia goes like full lemonade and just like busts all the windows of these cars with a baseball bat to take the it. bricks off the steering I love wheels it. <laughs> in a way that I think is deliberately evocative. Have we talked about? With respect to ghosts. Okay. If you are a ghost okay. and you are haunting people uh-huh. and you kill somebody, mm. you are making a ghost whose unfinished business is you. Uh-huh. So you would think that ghosts would be a little more careful about haunting people. Because they are going to become ghosts and they're going to move into your neighborhood and now you're going to have to deal with the upset neighbor who you killed. Yeah, it feels like a, it's, I, I almost said like a chain letter of ghosts, but that's not quite what it is. But there is like, <laughs> it's like a debt that you are paying forward. Like mm-hmm. when, when you kill someone, yeah, that is a ghost that's going to come after you. I don't like it. I don't, I don't, hmm. That. I don't want to be a ghost. Yeah. It's what you've just convinced yeah. me, Andrew. I maybe would have been a ghost before. Courtney suggests ghost paradox, to which I say paranormal paradox. <laughs> so uh now maybe yes, if I could if I could form a cool like get like like a gang of ghosts where we like did cool pranks, mm-hmm. that would be sweet. Tysavine suggests that the go- the original ghost would be a veteran, stronger ghost, and they would be a new, weak ghost, which suggests that ghosts do get, like, they do get reset to level one when you die yeah, you, and become yes, a ghost. That's true. You have to, so you have that to does make respec sense. when you die. Um, so let me do, like, the top level. You, I guess you would still retain some of your skills from your previous class, which is a live human. Yeah, but, but you, like, lose half your levels or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, let me just do, like, the top level summaries of each of these stories, because I do think they really work overall, like... Both as hmm, it's a weird way to say this, they work as a bunch of thing of smaller things taken in aggregate. I was surprised that there was not this like all-consuming narrative, um, even though there is stuff that moves through each story. So the next chapter uh, is about re- you know recovering this book that I mentioned earlier. Uh, it involves a cool action sequence where they break into a museum and there's an anti-gravity room that has a chest with a copy of the Necronomicon in it, um, (laughs) which is really fun. Uh, That's where they get their reparations money. There's a chapter about Hippolyta. I really liked this chapter about Hippolyta where she is um, a woman who wanted to be a discoverer as a young woman. She was really interested in space and wanted to discover Pluto, but then someone discovered Pluto and, and so she wrote a letter saying they should call it Pluto because of all the names in the other planets of the solar system. And then lo and behold, some other young white girl instead had gotten the credit for naming it Pluto. And it wasn't just a random person whose letter arrived first. It was someone with like family connections to people who named Mars. And so there's like yeah, this little sure. like who gets to who gets to be part of recorded history, who gets to contribute to the world um, and what we call things and, and things like that that I really like. Yeah, I think I think that episode of the show is the next one that I have to watch, uh, episode seven. So spoiler alert, she yeah. there, it's a cool sequence where she goes through a magic door and literally goes to another planet. And it's just a really neat sci-fi sequence that actually involves an alien rock that eats people. 
Um, I liked that one. There's a chapter about Ruby, who is Letitia's sister. Who, yes. um, if this is anything like the show, this is by far my favorite episode this, of the show, and it makes up for how bad that episode where the house falls apart <laughs> looks. Uh, this chapter is called the Jekyll and Hyde Park, uh, and Ruby, um, at, who's Letitia's sister, as I said, she is on hard times because she was fired from a like a catering service gig. She was set up by a white manager. Um, who told people that she stole some earrings that that person actually stole. And so Ruby's having a hard time. She inadvertently runs into our, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Caleb. Um, And he wants to enlist her in some nefarious dealings. And without her really knowing what's going on after they have a night out on the town, she wakes up as a red haired white woman. And there's a, a whole chapter where she, you know, first kind of runs away and experiences a, you know, whiteness and what it is to not uh, be met with suspicion where she, wherever she goes and moves through space differently, has a different relationship to police and power. Yeah, in the in the show, they add like a, an additional layer of what is going on here to this story by casting the same. Oh, uh, actor in, in the in the role of the white woman who Ruby becomes. And then you had seen her before in another role where you're exploring the um, like the Braithwaite. Uh, that is and, and that is also in it, the story. So. It, it is. OK, cool, yeah. cool. So where I won't like I think the, the reveal of where this turn into a white woman potion uh, is coming from is is really well done. But I will say, yeah, there's a payoff to where that is coming from. And. In in general, what do you in yeah. real life? I'm sorry to interrupt again. This is the last time <laughs> no, I'll do okay. it, I swear, ever in the whole. We're podcast. having fun here. In real life, if there was a white woman potion, would it be Pinot Grigio or would it be something else? If there was a potion that would turn you into a white woman, what would it taste like? I feel like it's either Pinot Grigio or like Pellegrino. <laughs> Just like sparkling. Oh water. yeah, a lot of people saying rosé or mimosa. Yeah, rose- <laughs> pumpkin, pumpkin spice white latte. Claw. Uh-huh. White claw. This is white good. Claw's a little on the nose, you guys. I think that's you got. <laughs> <laughs> I think like ten this years is a good ago. Exercise. I'm glad I did. I this. think ten or fifteen years ago, it would have been one of those like Bacardi ices. Oh yeah, or like a. Uh, like a Seagram's or a, a, a Zima <laughs> in the eighties, the white girl potion was a Zima. It's true. Um, so yeah, she drinks a very strong white claw and she turns into a white woman. It's really a fa- It's really well written in the sense that like she is slightly taller as a white woman and like keeps bumping her head on stuff. Um, <laughs> Allegra says Arbor Mist. Oh no. Um, <laughs> Mike's hard lemonade. I'm loving all of these answers. She inadvertently like abuses. Uh, the the power that she has like she actually like um runs into the manager that wronged her before uh sets her up for another shoplifting moment and then the cops like besiege that woman and she has a moment where she's like did i wow did i go too far what happened here um and ruby does not like what i really like about this story overall is just that like ruby doesn't meet a very like neat end like ruby throughout the rest of this book like this is just a thing that ruby's kind of doing um yeah, yeah, yeah and that she is like 
the theme of her story is about like it's a riff on passing it's a riff on um how do you make an identity and what opportunities to build identity are afforded to white people that are not traditionally afforded to black people um the meta plot that is advanced in this is that caleb uh, has proposed some sort of master wizard competition that would unite all of the wizard lodges underneath him, uh, which is really a trick to like kill them and take them over or something. But it feels at the time very much like that seat, like that part in the wire where they form the co-op, Andrew, where they're all mm-hmm. like magical criminals. And he's like, but what if we were all magical criminals together? Um, <laughs> there's a There's a chapter that this is the one that like didn't really stick with me from a... A narrative perspective they go to a ghost house in southern illinois atticus and his dad where they meet a the ghost of the son of hiram winthrop who was who had run away with uh the mother of his child who was a black woman that worked for his father and they are killed by racists in southern illinois and they live in this ghost house and live the day of their death over and over again. We find out a little bit more about the backstory of Montrose. I want to give this one a shout out because of what this has a passage that I think sums up what Ruff is doing with racism and cosmic horror. So in a flashback to the uh, the Tulsa attack, um, you get a story from Montrose's memory where he's a boy and his dad is trying to save him. His dad gets shot. Um, I saw my father had been shot in the side and there was blood coming out of his mouth. He had this look on his face, horror, horror at the universe. I was too young to understand it. I thought he was afraid because he was dying, but that wasn't it at all. It wasn't until I had a son of my own that I understood what he felt. He wasn't afraid for himself. He was afraid for me. He wanted to protect me. He had, he had saved my life getting me away from that gunfight, but the night wasn't over and he knew he wasn't going to be there to see me through it. That's the horror, the most awful thing. To have a child the world wants to destroy and know that you're helpless to help him. Um, so as we've we've mentioned at the top of the show, the like Lovecraft's cosmic horror is like, oh no, what if my precarious white supremacy goes away? What am I going to do with it? And Ruff here finds a way where Montrose can get into his dad's head and is like, what, what if I am actually as powerless to, to protect my son as I fear that I am. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, that is pretty effective. Um, The chapter on Horace, who is the younger comic book artist that I mentioned, he gets like, this is when the book starts trying to wrap up the threads, the plot threads a little bit. <laughs> and like, listen, I'm having fun. You're having fun, but we do got to, we this do got to end this at some point. <laughs> and I like Horace a lot. And he's, it's, it's interesting to have a, a, a kid be your POV character this late in the book. Um, the cops that are working for a guy that Caleb eventually wants to beat and conquer the cops come to, uh, Horace and are like hey we need to like talk to your mom about some stuff and potentially like find out why your family is connected to this Caleb guy we don't like and Horace doesn't want to cooperate so they cast a spell on his head uh, that makes his head really itchy and whenever he tries to tell somebody about it he gets as he gets has an asthma attack and he gets haunted by like dolls and labels and cartoon caricatures of black faces, which like mm-hmm. prey on this fear that he has, you know, from from being a kid and seeing some disturbing imagery. And so the 
eventually he gets like hunted down by this kind of racist caricature doll that tries to kill him. Um, which I thought was just a really kind of like Twilight Zoney take on the impact of racist depictions of people and how those things are harmful and in the yeah. but it's also like very much in the plot of uh the forces at work in this book. Uh and then the last story is like uh almost a big heist sequence where uh Caleb's wizarding event is about to happen. He has a copy of the Necronomicon that he wants to share. He kind of recaptures Atticus, quote unquote. He has enlisted all of the um the protagonist characters the you know Atticus and Letitia and George and Montrose and everybody um to help him beat these other these other guys because Caleb has been making the argument to them the whole time hey listen all these other white people like they're really gonna come for you and they're really gonna mess you up but like I'm sort of on the level like I'm gonna beat them and then you won't really hear from me again and everyone is like that's crap that's bs we don't believe him either um and so it does end with them defeating caleb quote-unquote after they've defeated the other people and they leave caleb in a space where he is restricted and where he can move throughout the united states they have like magically limited his ability to move through the country um which is a nice inversion of the Jim Crow and safe travel stuff that we were talking about at the top of the episode. Um, I've, I've completely like shortened what is actually happening. I'm not going to take enough time to describe all that action. It plays a lot more like a chapter in a book than a short story. It, yeah. it plays as the climactic, like it's jumping between different characters in different locations. Um, and so it is, is it like a, a payoff of the sort of, I don't want to say scattershot because I feel like that has too negative an mm-hmm, implication, mm-hmm. But, do, but does it yes, it does. pay off on all of the, all of the jumping around and like perspective and, and format that you've been doing completely the yeah. whole book? Okay, yeah. Cool. It is, it is a like, Oh, these are the characters that you've been with for a long period of time. And they're all in these, it's, you know, it's the Avengers, it's Ocean's Eleven. It's like, everybody's got a, a role to play. <laughs> the, the two movies <laughs> where a team of people comes together. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So and it's fun. I think the the thing I want to just remark on um, about the style of the book, and I just haven't read any Lovecraft in a long time, and I, I don't think that this is particularly reflective of that as much as it is the style of horror and the style of just fiction in general. Anytime that something like really wild happens with a monster or a magic spell or something, it's really short. Like it's really brief. You don't. He's not taking a, a lot of time to describe it. So at the end, when the, you know, Caleb's plan to get rid of all of his competition happens, he does enlist Atticus to use the spell. It's literally one paragraph. The spell was different this time. What came out of the doorway was not light, but darkness, a living dark, like the creature that haunted the, the Sabbath kingdom wood, or the Shabbath kingdom wood, I guess. Um, it swallowed up Lancaster and Noble and the rest of the Chicago Lodge and shot out a thin tendril of shadow to pop open the safe. And then it withdrew back into the doorway, leaving not even ashes behind. Like a bunch of buildup for a paragraph of a monster came out and ate everybody and left. Like it is not, he's not 
really relishing and reveling in descriptions of monsters, which I guess is pretty Lovecraftian. But he's not mm-hmm. he's not doing the thing where characters are like, oh my god, I can't even describe to you the thing I saw. It was so horrifying. He's not interested mm-hmm. in that. Um, yeah. And th- there are other examples where uh, when Hippolyta throws an alien rock monster at a cop, like it just eats him in a, in a line and then she moves on and, and stuff like that where... Um, that's not what Ruff is focused on. And also stylistically, I think it does more for him to not really dive into it. Um, Yeah, sure. Do you, what other thoughts as we wrap up from the show, uh, do you have that, that might be worth unpacking? Cause I think I came away just liking the book and I, I had a good time and I think it does a pretty good job of like, having a monster of the chapter, but also having that particular monster be connected to an, a particular flavor of American racism, <laughs> you know? Sure. Um, in Does the book, so in the, the episode I just watched and it's, it's peppered in throughout um, the show so far, but in, in the episode I just watched, we get like a flashback to Atticus's time in the Korean war. Do we do that at all in the book or is that? No, no, we do not. Okay. So that, that's what I thought because when I was reading the, like the dramatis personae from the book, it did not have this character, but there is like a, a, uh, like a, a Korean nurse in the, in the Korean war who is actually like a demon who has to, have sex with a hundred men and then, and like brutally murder them all uh-uh. uh, to become human. Nope. It's kind and the visual of it is kind of wild because they're all like these weird, like spider leg tendrils that like come out of her face. And yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> I'm surprised it's not in the book, even one little bit like, like to that he made Atticus a Korean war vet without. I, just Googled, I, I didn't is, just Google, yeah. I just searched in the app and I, I searched nurse and didn't come up, I came up with one thing and it was not related to that at all. Um, cool, okay. I also think that there's some like time hopping stuff that happens in the show that does not happen in the book, right? Like they're, yeah. they're like doing some time travel-y, timey-wimey stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that does not happen. Well, and there's some like specific stuff with uh, Montrose who is gay Mm. in the in the show mm-hmm. and it doesn't sound like it really comes nope. up in the book um yeah. and they also they changed um so in a new york times interview that i alluded to earlier misha green was talking about some of the changes they made um they you know caleb the primary antagonist who i've been talking about i think they've changed it to christina in terms of christina she said it's really not that complicated if we're exploring levels of power and using magic as the overlay of that it felt right to explore what it means for a white woman who doesn't technically have power to have stolen some of that power just like our people are technically stealing the power that was stolen from them um and they changed horace from the book into diana Uh, She says, we were talking about hashtag say her name, the campaign dedicated to black girls and women who are victims of police violence. Uh, When we were writing, we were seeing depictions of what this stuff is like for teenage black boys. What does it look like for black girls who are also in a horror movie everywhere they turn? So the, the, the the show seems like they took the source text the source text and by all accounts in multiple interviews, Matt Ruff was like, yeah, and now just go with it. Like do what you need to do. Um, obviously it's three to four years later from when the book was written, um, address what you need to address. So I think some folks coming to the book from the show 
will be surprised at maybe some bigger decisions that are not there. Uh, but I actually think that it is perhaps a little, it is pretty grounded and not as like these are monster hunters in each episode, which I I get the impression that there's a little bit more of that in the show. Yeah, kind of, sort of, yeah. Okay. That seemed to be one of the critiques from the Georges piece, that it was a little more like... It was more monster-focused. Monster-focused, yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, Which is easy to do in a TV show because the monsters are like monsters and you spend a lot of time yeah. building them and like creating them and the, your people are just people like they're boring. <laughs> well, and and there are visual incentives to like having cool monsters on your show and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but that's the book. I really dug it. I think folks will get a lot out of it. And I, I read it, you know, all in one go. I don't, I think the, the narrative that attaches each story works pretty well. Um, even though rhythmically they definitely feel like tales from Lovecraft country in a way. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could do, I'm not, I'm not sure if there are plans to do another season of the show, but it sounds like it would be a pretty easy universe to build on at least if that was something that yeah that HBO decided to do. And the, the book does have a little bit of a, of a, where are they now epilogue that certainly, alludes to and drives home an argument that like hey just because they dealt with this one white guy doesn't mean that that solves all their problems and there are still things for for these characters to deal with so the book does not for for a book that honestly like a horror book that doesn't really cause a lot of harm to the main characters it doesn't then say that their life is magically better at the end, which I appreciate. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I I have one one more oh, white me. woman potion. Oh, sure, before please. Before we go into the end. <laughs> is, uh, let me scroll up and find, Lana says, uh, quote, thankful, grateful, blessed, unquote, whispered into a sangria you're about to return because it isn't strong enough. <laughs> Keeping in mind that if these were white dude potions, it would just be like IPAs or Miller yeah, Lights, yeah, would depending on like, which like white dude you wanted IPA, to become. Yeah. Yes. And and you would need to talk to another, you need to find a white dude to talk to about it. And that <laughs> part, that would be like the trigger that would turn you into the white dude. Uh, Graham in the chat says, I thought the book was tighter, but oddly less ambitious. I feel like that Same. might be, I feel like that might be a decent read. The book does feel pretty contained and and tight to the characters and i think naturally a tv show is going to try to be a little bit bigger than that um yeah thanks to everybody who was able to join us andrew thanks for figuring out the stream stuff and making me small and such a good expert keeping everybody entertained while i was talking about this cool book um if folks want to talk to us about other fiction that is riffing on Lovecraft Country. If some folks have Mm -hmm. read The Ballad of Black Tom, or not Lovecraft Country, Lovecraft. If folks have uh, read The Ballad of Black Tom, want to tell us about it, something like that, you can shoot us an email at overduepod at gmail.com or hit us up on social media, twitter.com or facebook.com slash overduepod. Uh, I want to thank Nick Larangis who composed our theme song. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? 
They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. We have links to subscribe to the show. Review us in Apple Podcasts if you have not. We would really appreciate that, um, especially new listeners. I know we have some new people in the in the stream chat tonight, so thanks for showing up. And if you stick around after the show, you might get some Baby Henry pictures. Who can say? Um, we also have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash OverduePod, if you want to join the chat, which gets pretty rowdy, but in a very polite and open and honest way, yep. which is the best way to get rowdy. Yep. Uh, you there, there's I forget which tier it is. The people in the chat probably know <laughs> <laughs> that you we will send you these links to these these little chats, and you get to just sit in with us and have a little bit of fun. Which has been it's it's been really nice, especially during quarantine, to have this little like just random window of time that pops up every couple of months to be around other people in a way. Yep. A lot of reminders in our chat to vote. If you are yes, hearing this, um, by the time that this hits the main feed, the election may have happened. Um, so if you're listening to this, may have, if you're listening to this on the bonus feed, please head to vote, save If you need some information on where to vote and how yeah, to do is, so is an endorsement of the information on that page and not necessarily a comment on the ideology of anybody who yep. helped to create. It. That's true. Um, um, also by the time that this hits the main feed, you should see our November schedule. Andrew and I have picked the books. We just need to pick the order in which they will be read and released. So keep an eye on our social feeds for that. That's it, Andrew. Get us out of here, please. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us for another Spooktober. I think it's been really spooky. It has actually. Um, until we spook you next year, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.